If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Second Peter, chapter one. We'll read our text now and then come to it uh, in the middle of the sermon uh, and a bit later. Verses three through seven of Second Peter one. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Today we conclude our series on the vices of sloth and vainglory. And perhaps for some, it is a relief. In part, I think, because there remains a question in the battle against sin and vices, as we've seen in this series, are we gladiators alone in the arena? Or do we have comrades beside us and behind us? A better question might be, is this our fight or is this the Lord's fight in our life? It really raises the question, is not the transformation of our lives, of our hearts, the work of the Holy Spirit? And if it is the work of the Holy Spirit, then why are we spending so much time looking at the distinctions and the sources of vainglory to discern our sin and confess in tedious detail? I think these are, in fact, valid questions. We need to make clear the issues because they determine how we will, in fact, answer the most important question. How are we supposed to live as people of God? We who are the redeemed people, the redeemed disciples of Jesus Christ, how are we supposed to live? What is to mark our living? When we started this series, and we've seen it several times since then, we saw that the whole concept of vices was started by the Desert Fathers in southern Egypt in the 4th century. It began as these men withdrew from society, went into the desert to face temptation and sin head on, to cultivate a spirit through prayer and to follow the example of Jesus. After all, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Based on the experiences of these men, they came up with a list of what they called the deadly sins or the capital vices. Originally, the list had eight uh, items, as I mentioned when we began. Gluttony, lust, avarice, sadness, anger, sloth, vainglory, and pride. One of the weaknesses, though, I think, of the Desert Fathers was that they applied this primarily to the individual. As time went on, we see that it is, in fact, applied to the community. Not simply to individuals who are living out in the desert by themselves, but to those who are living with other people. Another list is drawn up later on, same items but in different order. A third list is drawn up about the uh, 6th century, um, and it's pared down to seven. Vainglory, envy, sadness, avarice, wrath, lust, gluttony. Pride is seen as the root of all of these seven vices. Envy is added, and sloth is, in fact, put under the category of sadness. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas gave another list, And again, pride is the root of the seven vices. 
And sloth had not simply been added to sadness, it had replaced sadness. Sadness was no longer considered a capital vice. Today, I think most people, if you'd ask them what are the vices, they would say pride, envy, sloth, greed, wrath, lust, gluttony. You will notice that vainglory is missing. One of the problems, though, that I face in going through this series, and perhaps you have as well, is one could argue, listen, fourth century desert fathers, we're in the 21st century. The distance historically between us is so great that it's a real stretch to somehow take what they came up with and transplant it into our society today, into our lives. I mean, is this, in fact, the best way for us to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the 21st century? We have a list from the Desert Fathers, from Gregory the Great in the 6th century, from Aquinas, from the Reformation. Then we have the traditional catalog of sins. Um, as one person put it, it can be a dizzying array of lists leading into a labyrinth of diagnostic tests and aids to confession. It's almost overwhelming. One could get dizzy just dealing with all these things. And then there is something perhaps even more profound, and that is our sin is something that we cannot fully grasp ourselves because of the depth of our own blindness and our own self-deception and our ignorance. David wrote in Psalm 19, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. One might ask, without being rude or maybe even irreverent, wouldn't it be healthier and more theologically correct to simply confess that we are sinners than to trust the Lord Jesus Christ's sacrifice to wash away our sins and entrust ourselves to the Spirit for forgiveness and ask that the Spirit would heal us? Isn't it better just to do that? That way we don't get caught up in a web of self-accusation, shame, guilt, from which we might never seem to be able to escape. There is always a danger, I think, of excess. Whenever we get into something and we think, well, this is really important, um, there is a tendency, a human tendency, to sort of go overboard. In the 13th century, there was a Dominican a friar, William Peraldus, who wrote on the seven deadly sins, he included 27 chapters on sloth alone. Well, you know, after a while, I think we might call it navel-gazing, but we, come, we so focus on ourselves in, in the interior that we get lost and caught in this labyrinth, this web of, of sins. It's like, it's like a no-win situation. In the same way that we are made in the image of the Creator, and we are to follow His example, Jesus tells us, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. In the same way, through the image, or through the work of Christ, we are being remade into the image of Christ. So we are made in the image of God, and we are being transformed, we are being remade into the image of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Romans, for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And in 1 Corinthians 15, And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so let us bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Paul told the Ephesians, Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.
We can never forget, and I hope we have not forgotten in this series, that Jesus is the model of virtue. He is the one with the perfected human nature. And the call of the Christian is to be Christ-like, is to be like him. Through Christ and for his sake, the Father gives us the Holy Spirit to help us, to aid us in living lives of virtue. What this means for us is that the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit are in fact foundational. They are the foundation upon which our lives are built and our efforts to live in closer communion with God. I cannot, I cannot be like God, I cannot be like Jesus Christ apart from the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. We are to take off vices, take off sins, and to put on virtues. In Ephesians 4, this is an extended passage, bear with me, Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we all mem- are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul tells us to put off and to put on. And when you look at this list, when you listen to it, this seems impossible. But in fact, we must depend completely on the Spirit's work. We cannot replace the Spirit. We cannot do what the Holy Spirit does. We need the work of Christ to redeem us. And we need the work of the Holy Spirit to help us as we pursue holiness. So in our text today, you may have noticed there's seemingly a contradiction. Some might say there's a problem. Because uh, Peter begins by saying in verse number 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So we have what we need. But then he says, make every effort. So God has given us everything we need. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean we kick back and say, okay, Holy Spirit, do your work in our life. We are to make every effort. And then he gives us a list that we are, in fact, to put on these things, to add, to add, to add. Something we cannot do by ourselves. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. This is not working out our own salvation. This is not gaining God's favor. It is working out what we already have. God has given us the tools, and by the Spirit, now we are to work these things out in our lives. 
And we do this walking in step with the Spirit. Even if we are mindful, though, that spiritual formation is our goal and grace is the means of achieving that goal, there are still ways to turn sin, self-examination, into an overwhelming system. I said at the beginning of the series that vice is not found in the Scripture. And for some people, that's a good enough reason to say, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Um, Some people are quite suspicious when we talk about vices and virtues, as they don't find these to be biblical at all. Since the Reformation, with the rise of Protestantism, rather than looking to vices and virtues, many have looked to the Ten Commandments that this is in fact what God, how he wants us to live. I've mentioned before, when you look at the Ten Commandments, they essentially tell us this is what it means to be human. This is how you're supposed to live. A list of virtues, those who accept the Ten Commandments, they would say are the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul writes to the, Ephes- uh, to the Galatians. But let's take a deep breath and, and slow down a bit. When the Desert Fathers drew up the list of vices, it was the intention that it was uh, to be a part of a program of training, of discipling, to raise men who would be athletes and soldiers for Jesus Christ, to prepare them to live lives of prayer. The vices were not intended to be the things around which their lives revolved from now on. It was as though, if you wish, an athlete who is untrained comes into a program and he has certain things that he does that are wrong. And the coach, the trainer says, listen, these are the things you need to put off. These are the things you need to quit doing. And these are the things that you need to do in their place. As they saw it, Jesus went into the wilderness a time of preparation. There he was tempted. So in the same way, the monks would go into the desert and they would say, this is a time of preparation. And after the preparation, now we can go out and live lives of prayer and of ministry and and help other people. This is what the monks did. They went in the desert to prepare themselves to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So they diagnosed the problem. What is my problem? And there was a list. And so you could check yourself, is this something that I need to deal with? And in practical terms, how can I deal with these things, these, these weaknesses? And so the purpose was to diagnose, for them to find, what is my problem? What are the things I need to watch out for? What are my weaknesses that I need to deal with so that I can then go on and live a life as a soldier or an athlete of Jesus Christ? If we're not careful, we will be preoccupied and overburdened with the notion of sin, of our own sins. That when we come to realize what our weakness is, it just weighs us down like chains. But we need to step back and look at the bigger picture. Confronting sin is not the goal. That's not what this is all about. It is meant to be a way in which we recognize our weaknesses and leads us to be strengthened where we need it the most. And this is where the community comes in. This is why I think 
when we speak of the vices, we need to do so as a congregation. Because oftentimes we are blind to our own weaknesses. And we need someone who is outside of us who can speak to us gently and in love and say, listen, these are some of the weaknesses or this is the weakness that you have in your life. The list of vices was meant to be a diagnostic list. So that as we deal with one another, we have these tools at hand whereby we can gently encourage one another and say, listen, this is something you need to put off and you need to put something in its place. See, it turns out that the vices were meant not only to be used to heal, but also as preventative. If I know that this is a particular weakness that I have, then it's something I can be on my guard against. And not only so it doesn't happen again, but so that I can strengthen by God's grace and by his spirit myself in those areas in which I need it most. The Desert Fathers did not intend this list to be exhaustive, that these are all the sins or all the vices that one can possibly commit. Rather, they help, the list helped them articulate difficulties that people, they knew something was wrong and they just quite couldn't put their finger on it. And the Desert Fathers had a list, and that's it. That's the area in which I struggle the most. Imagine that you go to the doctor because you have stomach pain, some persistent abdominal pain, and you wonder what it is, you want to know what it is. Is it just indigestion? Uh, is it acid reflux? Is it something more serious? The doctor helps you by asking you questions. And these questions help you to name the trouble, and then he or she can, in fact, give you instruction as to what you should do to deal with the problem. In the same way, the vices are this diagnostic tool whereby the teacher could ask the disciple, okay, look at this list. You seem to, something's not right with you. Do these things ring a bell with you? Do they strike a chord with you? And so we have, out of the fourth century, the emergence of this list. I'm wondering if this could be what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Philippians. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge, in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Several things worth noting. Discernment, discipleship, are the work of the community, not the individual. It's the work of the community, not the individual. I think I could say this every Sunday from now on, and we as Americans in the 21st century would still struggle with this, because culturally we are individualistic. The idea of somebody saying to me, um, you know, I think you have a problem with whatever, I think is very offensive to us. It's like mind your own business. And we talk about our own relationship with God, our own personal relationship with God, and the notion that somehow other people may have insight into my problems. Um, well, we like that when things really, really get rough, but otherwise we want people to just back off. 
you know, just, just mind your own business. But discipleship is the work of the congregation, of the community. We oftentimes do not see our own sins, our own weaknesses, even when we sense that something is wrong. Just have this uneasy sense that something is wrong. We don't have a name for the problem. We need to recognize that there are other people on the road with us. There are other people taking the same journey with us who are disciples of Jesus Christ. And they are on this journey of discipleship with us. We also need to remember that this journey of sanctification is not to find our salvation, but rather it is the work, it is the walk and the work of a disciplined disciple. We are the children of God, we are disciples of Jesus Christ, we are walking down this road together. We've already been accepted by the Master, that's why we're on this road. We've already been saved by Jesus and His work. Now we are enrolled in a school for training in righteousness. We do not take off the vices by our own efforts in order to make ourselves good enough for God to let us on the path. We, in fact, are already saved. We are on the journey. And God has given us the gift of faith and grace and divine power. They are for something. They are for transforming us into new creations. He has given us everything that we need for this journey. The list of vices offer helpful ways of breaking down the process of transformation. These are things, this area I need to deal with and, and not, without being boastful to say, this, this area here is not a particular problem for me, whereas this one is and this is something that I need to focus on. You may remember when we were looking at the vice of sloth that I said sloth is the old self, the old sinful self resisting transformation into the new self in Jesus Christ. We are on the path, but one of the vices is like, yeah, I'd, this is me. This is just the way I am. And the idea of being transformed into something, we're on the path, and yet somehow this vice comes in and it tells us, yeah, you're fine the way that you are. Vainglory, we have seen, while it is in fact a problem, for individuals, it's a personal problem, it also affects structures and it does institutional damage in society and culture. So think, for example, and don't want to get too personal, but if you work in an office and someone who doesn't do as much work, but in fact is much more vocal about what they do, gets praised, gets honored, Whereas perhaps you do a lot more work, but you don't blow your own horn, you don't toot your own horn, you don't make a big deal about it. This person gets recognized and your efforts are not recognized at all. With modern technology, we are able to capture and post almost every event in our life or in the lives of others. Are we not, in fact, unwittingly sending the message that everything we or others do is for an adoring audience so that people can like us. The more opportunities we have for publicity, the more problems we have with vainglory or potentially we will face with vainglory. In the process, the preoccupation with image limits our spiritual discernment. Somehow we become blind to the fact that we are performing for almost a worldwide audience with the Internet. And our discernment becomes clouded. And our wise reflection on what is excellent and noble and beautiful 
really gets dimmed. It really does. Because we're so busy trying to put on something for other people that we have lost sight of very important truths. Last week, by the way, I pointed out that some disciplines may help us in dealing with vainglory. I mentioned specifically the disciplines of silence and solitude. And I pointed out that these disciplines may be more difficult for mothers as they have their hands full day after day with children. Um, It was wisely pointed out to me, fathers have their hands full as well, not just mothers. And their days are quite full as well. Having said that, and I do believe that silence and solitude as disciplines can be very helpful, no practice by itself guarantees freedom for vainglory or the temptation to vainglory. Because if it did, all I need to do is be silent and alone and I'm set. I don't need you all and I can deal with vainglory. But the reality is to deal with the vices, I need you and you need me. Silence and solitude are disciplines, by the way, in which we withdraw from broken communities or society. And they detach us from the sin-warped social systems and recognition and reward, of recognition and reward. Talking earlier to someone about this, that there is a time for silence, I think, and a time for solitude. But the fact that we need silence and solitude means that something is really broken. And it's so broken that I need to actually get away from it for a time and be silent. Or I need to get away from it and be alone. And in that, several things can happen. I can see the brokenness, but I can also, by God's grace, reset. So that when I come back into the world, if you wish, from silence or from solitude, I have a better sense of how things are. What brings us into a, back into a healthy community? What would heal those social institutions or structures that build community? That can offer Christian encouragement rightly ordered toward God's glory? What are the positive practices that in fact we can do to push against vainglory. What about celebrating together? During our time for prayer, when we speak of the way that God has answered our prayers, as we have done today. Or when we share an appreciation of a gift or of goodness. What about when we encourage one another? Why is it that it is not always easy for us to celebrate goodness together? Could it be that it is hard for us to rejoice with those who rejoice because other successes begin to dim our own? Our society is basically competitive. That's what drives American society today. And if you doubt this, turn on the television. And we find that we are bombarded by competitive TV shows, some of which we enjoy. Iron Chef, Master Chef, Master Chef Junior. It's amazing that these little kids can cook. I don't think they can read, but they can cook. Um, and then there are others that make us cringe, like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Survivor, The Apprentice. But I think all of these, in a sense, serve as a metaphor for our lives. 
that our, our acceptance by other people is performance-based, it is competitive, and it is dependent on others' fickle whims and prejudices. Rebecca DeYoung in her book on Vainglory says, Starve for unconditional love, we find ourselves waiting to be voted off the island and checking the like versus dislike counts on our YouTube and Facebook posts for an ego boost several times a day. Has this infected the church? Are we willing to admit our weakness or weaknesses? Are we willing to acknowledge that the Jesus we follow is a friend of sinners? That we are sinners? Are we busy being competitive? What used to be called holier than thou has now really taken on a competitive ring to it. We are to celebrate God's gifts to us all as common goods, not competitive goods. That whatever gifts God has given us, we are to share with others. And it's not, I'm better than you, or you're better than me, but we are in fact God's people together. This raises a whole host of questions, which would be a whole other series, but it won't be. Let's just take one question. It's something that I've struggled with, and perhaps you do as well. How, how are you to take a compliment well? When somebody compliments you, what is the proper response? Do you downplay it and say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's, not, it's nothing? Are you to squirm? Do you squirm with discomfort or glow with delight? What if, in fact, we express our delight that somebody else has appreciated what is good and offer in return our appreciation to them the way that their compliment has encouraged us? See, our culture is competitive and is driven by vainglory, and I think as a church, the church at large today has been infected by this. What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I think against the myth of the self-made man, we need to become more conscious of the ways that when somebody does something good, it didn't start with them. That there is, in fact, behind that person a long list, a whole train of people who are responsible for what that person has done that is good. Um, So, for example, if somebody plays uh, a beautiful piece of music, Well, you have to think of the person who built the instrument. There's that. And then the person who's playing. Who trained them? And the hours of practice? Oh, and let's not forget the person who wrote the piece of music that the person's playing. There's a whole train that goes behind. So that when somebody does something good, let's not say, well, let's... let's Don't praise him or her. They'll get a big head. But rather acknowledge... You've done something that is good and it reflects a whole host of people who have come before you. Now, living in today's world, that people may not even acknowledge that. They may want to take all the credit for themselves. But we as God's people, the answer is not to say, well, you didn't do anything good. Not at all. It is something good. 
and acknowledge what is behind it. We also need to acknowledge our dependence on our immediate community. I've talked about a teacher, but there's also your parents and your grandparents, your mentors, your teachers, your supporters. And then we need to go a step beyond that to those who have come before us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That we are called the light of the world means that we reflect God's glory. Not that we are good in and of ourselves, but it is God's goodness in us. And when people see that, they may praise our Father who is in heaven. We've seen in this series, as those who are made in the image of the Creator, we long to have our goodness recognized. And there's, in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. God not only made us good, He affirmed our goodness at the very beginning by saying that everything He has made, or everything He had made, was very good. So we long to hear that. That's human nature. And the first person who told us that we were good was God. His acknowledgement came first. And every genuine taste we get of it since then is in fact, I think, a celebration of the goodness that God has put in us. That God has made us in his image. But pride and fear spoil this goodness and God's affirmation of it. And so we seek to be affirmed by others. God's affirmation apparently is not enough. Pride and fear tempt us to distrust God. That when God says we are good, no, 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 no. no. And so pride and fear both try to create something um, so that people will like us. We seek to achieve glory as determined by those around us rather than by the one who made us. So you need to ask yourself. I need to ask myself. We need to ask ourselves. Who am I? What do I need? Where can I find grace and love and joy? Do I dare ask for these things, believing that I will receive God's abundant provision Or will I continue trying to supply these things for myself? We are those who are made in the image of God, the Creator. He alone, He alone is the source of all grace and love and joy. And while we are broken, we have been reclaimed, we have been redeemed, and we are gradually being remade into something more glorious than before. Because through it all, we are beloved by God, whose goodness is beyond all comprehension. We are, from first to last, the beloved of God. You remember, as I told you last week, that Jesus, after the time in the wilderness, comes out. He is affirmed, this is my son whom I love. 
if we live out that view of ourselves, that we are the beloved of God, we will be able to celebrate and appreciate goodness in others and not be envious, not be competitive. We will be able to be freed from an excessive attachment to our own accomplishments or reputation. What we will say is, when I fail, I am the beloved. When I succeed, I am the beloved. God is our audience. He is the one who has supplied us everything we need. Vain glory, while a real temptation in today's world, should be something that we push aside. George Herbert was a poet in the 17th century, and he wrote the following. He was, he was a, a pastor of a small church. Lord, how can man preach thy eternal word? He is a brittle, crazy glass. Yet in thy temple, though dost, thou dost him afford this glorious and transcendent place to be a window through thy grace. It is God's goodness that shines through us. And instead of trying to be recognized and trying to have people pat us on the back, there should be a sense that God loves me and God's goodness is reflected or shining through me and I am to share that with others. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise we'll be a disciple of something else. We'll be a disciple of, of, of a world system that seeks to elevate ourselves rather than saying, oh, God made me for this and by his grace this is who I am. I am the beloved. Let's pray together. Father, we are human. We want to be liked. We want to be loved. And how easily we forget that from beginning to end, we are your beloved, that you love us. How competitive we are living when and where we, we do. We exchange our audience. We want the approval of others rather than recognizing your eternal love. By your spirit, may we think on these things and as a congregation put them into practice. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name.